We read scripture this morning from two different passages in connection with our treatment of the seventh commandment. As we've been looking through the commandments, we turn to scripture and we turn this time to Ephesians 5, verses 15 to 33. We'll first read that passage and then we take up 1 Thessalonians 4, the first 12 verses of the chapter. Ephesians 5, verses 15 and following. We hear the inspired word of God. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore, be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For as the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Then we turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll read the first 12 verses of that chapter. 1 Thessalonians 4. Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testify. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you. For ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed ye do it toward all the brethren 
which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more, and that ye study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, and that ye may have lack of nothing. We read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. On the basis of those passages, as well as others to which we'll make reference, we have the teaching of Lord's Day 41 in the back of our Psalters on page 23. As we've been proceeding through the various commandments, we come now to the seventh. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Question 108. What doth the seventh commandment teach us? That all uncleanness is a curse of God, and that therefore we must, with all our hearts, detest the same, and live chastely and temperately, whether in holy wedlock or in single life. Doth God forbid in this commandment only adultery and such like gross sins? Since our body and soul are temples of the Holy Ghost, He commands us to preserve them pure and holy. Therefore, he forbids all unchaste actions, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever can entice men thereto. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Heidelberg Catechism, here in this 41st Lord's Day, approaches the seventh commandment from the viewpoint of chastity. It doesn't focus on marriage, it doesn't focus on the covenant. As a matter of fact, none of our confessions say anything about marriage, say anything about divorce. The Westminster Confession, the Presbyterian Standard, has an elaborate chapter on marriage and divorce as found in chapter 24 as quoted in the handout. Our own three forms of unity are silent on the subject. And the result has been then that there's been little consensus of opinion in Reformed churches regarding marriage. Some view only one ground for divorce, adultery. Others grant more than one ground. Some believe that legal divorce ends a marriage and therefore frees up then both parties for a second biblical marriage. Others limit the right of remarriage. They say only the so-called innocent party has that right to remarry but not the other. Others forbid remarriage because divorce does not break the marriage bond. Now this Lord's Day immediately broadens the seventh commandment to forbid all uncleanness. Important it is for us to examine our hearts in that regard. Am I walking in a manner that reflects that turning away from lust, that turning away from the pursuit of the flesh? And am I walking before God in holiness and purity? And we stand convicted. It is our nature to lust, to desire that which we ought not have. And sexual sins so quickly get hold of us. But this morning, we repent. We turn away and we cry out to God for mercy. Now the term adultery, thou shalt not commit adultery, originates with regard to marriage. It literally refers to the marriage bond and then that sexual relationship that would violate that marriage bond. As we treat the seventh commandment this morning, we're going to begin with 
marriage. Now the Bible speaks of the reality that lies behind this commandment, and that's the wonder by which believers are married to God. Jehovah God has taken us and has betrothed us to himself. He's done so especially through Jesus Christ so that we believe that as believers we are married to Jesus Christ in an intimate union of love and friendship. It's a union that will never end. So blessed it is. Despite our unfaithfulness, spiritual adultery, God is faithful. And as a faithful husband receives us in mercy, forgives us, embraces us, And brings us through this life into glory. This glorious union between us and Christ is illustrated in an earthly sense in marriage. The marriage between one man and one woman for life. Now many say they love God. They talk about communion with God and fellowship with God. But they walk in all sorts of impenitent sins. Sins against all of the different commandments. And they reveal themselves then to be liars. They say they love God, but by their actions and conduct, they're not walking in a manner that reflects God as their Lord. So it is in marriage. And so it is with regard to the seventh commandment. When it comes to the doctrine of marriage, the earthly picture of the spiritual marriage, there are those who live impenitently, blatantly in sin, not living with a spouse that God has joined them to, rejecting the calling that God places upon them. And the devil tempts them then to fornication, to adultery, to every sexual sin. They claim that they can live freely in that sexual sin and that that meets the approval of God. As we read Scripture and as we stand before God's will, God comes to us powerfully and says, Repent! Turn! God despises unrepentant sin, including unrepentant, continual adultery. The saints in Thessalonica especially were conscious of this. Marriage and social life were two areas where the heathen in Thessalonica were far removed from the Christians. And that became evident in the early church. You remember at the conference that was held in Acts 15? It was crucial that fornication be addressed and therefore as the churches were forming throughout paganism urgent it was that the admonition came that they could not continue in fornication they had to turn from that sin as Christians we're called to a higher expression of our love one for another and that's what the apostle here by the inspiration of the spirit addresses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 now positively God calls us then to live faithfully before him. And as he places us in marriage, to live within that marriage in the enjoyment of the covenant bond that he has given to us. When he does not give us that bond, in singleness, we are to live then in chastity and communion with God, keeping ourselves unspotted from the world. Now we're tempted to say, but you don't understand my situation. Think of Jesus. Jesus understands. He knows the burdens you bear. Jesus never married. Jesus never was able to enjoy the sexual relationship while on earth. And yet, 
He was faithful. And he gives his spirit to us to preserve and to keep us in that faithfulness. We look this morning at the seventh commandment, noting the principle, the prohibition, and the demand, using the same general breakdown as we have for the other commandments. What is the principle behind the seventh commandment? Ultimately, God is holy. But it has to do also with the fact that this holy God has instituted a proper place for the sexual relationship. And he has done so by instituting the bond of marriage. The heart of this command then, the principle of this commandment, goes back to Genesis 2, verses 18 and following, where God instituted that holy bond. He took Adam, he put him in a deep sleep. Out of him he took a rib and he formed a woman. And he woke up Adam and he gave Adam a wife, whom Adam then named Eve. That's the principle behind this commandment, the holy bond of marriage as the proper place where this good gift is to be exercised. Now God instituted marriage in the righteous perfection of paradise. That's an important thing to note. Marriage isn't a sacrament that's merely found in the church, first of all. Marriage is an ordinance of creation and therefore that creation ordinance is valid then outside even the church. Two wicked individuals marry. They have a marriage, even though it fails to reflect the marriage of God in the church. They still are married in God's eyes. A believer may sinfully marry an unbeliever. Their union is still a marriage in God's eyes. But in the beginning, when God instituted marriage, no evil lusts corrupted that original relationship. Some say God instituted marriage because of fornication. But God instituted marriage before fornication was even an issue. Adam and Eve. Adam knew perfection in paradise. And God then instituted marriage in that perfection. Now God instituted marriage for a purpose. As a picture of his covenant relationship with his people. And that's what Ephesians 5 is really getting at here. The passage that we read. Talking about marriage, talking about the important roles that God gives to each individual person in marriage, husband and wife, the apostle then brings us to this conclusion. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. That's the basis, the background of earthly marriage. God speaks of marriage as that which is built on the covenant relationship between Jehovah God and his people. Jesus Christ and his church. And God speaks then of his covenant as a marriage bond. We find that throughout the Bible. God speaking of the fact that he's married to us and that by virtue of that marriage, we're committed to him then. We're not to have any other lovers. And for us then to follow after idols or other gods or sinful ways is spiritual adultery. As those who live in covenant with God, we are to live faithfully before his face. Think of he, Hosea 2. And I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will betroth thee unto me in faithfulness and thou shalt know the Lord. What a beautiful truth. All of the various words that are given there. That he takes us, he binds us to himself in faithfulness. He's faithful. In mercy, he forgives us. 
He gives us the grace that we need day by day to persevere. So that Jehovah God takes us, his children, and embraces us in love in that which is the true marriage. So that the earthly relationship is but a faint picture of that glorious union that is ours in Christ. The covenant of God realized in Jesus Christ. And for that reason then, marriage is to be a reflection of that wonder. Now that right doctrine of marriage is reflected then in holy living. This is always true with regard to the connection between doctrine and life. Knowing God's covenant, knowing the wonder of that covenant, now stirs within us a desire to be faithful as we live in the enjoyment of that wonder. The doctrine of marriage, which begins with God's union with us in Jesus Christ, where God pledges, He will not forsake us, He will not cast us off, but He will keep us, is that which lies behind His calling now to a husband. Be faithful to your wife, even as I am faithful to you. She sins against you, you sin against me. You say, but that gives me occasion then to leave her. Am I leaving you, God says? So that God now establishes the reality. And he now calls us to live in the enjoyment of it, reflecting the wonder of his love and his faithfulness toward us. That life then, that a husband and a wife live, is a life that's lived in connection with their union with Christ. And it's lived out of that union with Christ. The husband loves his wife with the strength that God gives him by virtue of having joined him to himself and given him that calling. And the wife loves her husband for God's sake with the strength that God has given her as he's united her to himself. They live one life, not just physically, but spiritually bound together in love, proceeding from the life of regeneration and from the wonder and the joy of that union that is theirs in Jesus Christ. And so that's why, ultimately, it's only a Christian marriage that can really reflect the beauty and the wonder of that reality. The husband and wife complementing one another for God's sake. And there's no room for another. It's exclusive. Just as God says to us, love me. Love me alone. There's no room for anyone else. Now, because of the nature of of the intimate union of marriage as reflected as a reflection of the covenant we understand then that earthly marriage is for life God calls us to marry one another and that marriage is till death separates us we made those vows when we were joined together in holy bond of marriage and those vows are biblical God lays out clearly in the scriptures his calling in that regard That relationship cannot be dissolved by men. It cannot be broken by men in terms of now that marriage no longer being intact. Though a man and a woman no longer live with one another, they yet remain married in God's eyes. And that's evident from a number of passages. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will, only in the Lord. Again, Romans 7, verses 2 to 3. 
For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Where there is then divorce, two individuals separated, the calling then is to remain unmarried or be reconciled. That's the clear instruction of 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11. And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. But, and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And let not the husband put away his wife. God clearly lays out in his word instructions for us as we enter into this holy state. And we understand the concern of the disciples As Jesus is instructing the disciples regarding the permanence of marriage, the disciples say, is this really so? If this be the case, it is not good for a man to marry. They're struck with the reality that Jesus is setting forth and in their estimation, harshness of it. But the reason why God instituted that marriage bond is because it reflects that marriage between Christ and his church. The life that we have with Jesus Christ is a life that never ends. The promise that Christ makes to us is unconditional. I will love you. And I will love you to all eternity. And it's not dependent on anything of you. It's not dependent on anything of us. It's exclusively based on his faithfulness and his work on the cross. And that bond then remains forever. Now what a wonder Nothing can separate me from the love of God in Jesus Christ. That's the confession of Romans 8, the glorious doxology. Now when it comes to earthly marriage then, the type always falls away in order that the reality reveals itself all the more gloriously. And so it is with earthly marriage. Though Christ's marriage to us is everlasting, earthly marriage is only till death. And then the death of one spouse or the other allows for the opportunity then for a biblical second marriage. Marriage is just as long as this life lasts. And at death, God takes us into the reality. We don't need the picture any longer. And so when we die and our loved one or our loved one dies, God now takes them into the reality of which their earthly marriage was but a picture. And now we're brought into the fullness of that bliss, of that walk with Christ to all eternity. The doctrine of marriage then is closely related to the doctrine of the covenant. God's covenant being an unconditional covenant established by God with man to all eternity. When a church then, or when we as individuals tolerate other views of marriage, of necessity we begin to undermine then the teaching of the covenant and the importance of that relationship between Christ and his church. Now most of the time, it's just a matter of toleration. You don't have to, you don't have to say that we're doing what's right. You just, we just want you to tolerate us. But for us to tolerate abhorrent sinful behavior is contrary to God's will and contrary to the word of God. 
We are called to expose sin, no matter where that sin is and no matter what that sin exists. And we do so, first of all, with regard to our own lives. We examine ourselves in connection with God's law and God's word. And we say, where's my heart? Where's my mind? Where are my actions? It doesn't matter if it's drunkenness or if it's adultery or if it's slander or backbiting. The issue is, if I am tolerating these sins in my life and I'm actively walking in them and continuing in them, I can't have peace. I need to be called to repentance. And I need to be called in order that I turn from that sin and walk more humbly before my God. Scripture repeatedly emphasizes there's no place in the kingdom of heaven for idolaters and adulterers, drunkards, various other sins mentioned. The drunk who says, I'm sorry, but he keeps on going back to the bottle, needs to repent. The person who says, I'm sorry that I'm living with someone that I ought not, but then keeps living with that one, needs to repent and turn. And the seriousness of living in sin before God's eyes must be set forth. Tolerance of such sin in our own lives or the lives of others is an offense to the living God. And it results in denial of God's glory and denial also of the truth of God's covenant. Increasingly, principles work through. And so where marriage is now not held in high honor, then God's covenant is not held in high honor. God's covenant as an unbreakable bond now begins to be taught as that which is breakable, that which is conditional, just as a marriage is conditional and a marriage can be broken so God's covenant can be broken and now what ends up happening is our experiences begin to dictate doctrine instead of doctrine dictating our walk God comes to us and says my word is what dictates your life your life does not dictate the word we don't change God's word to match our living we change our living to match God's will God then sets before us the importance of marriage. And as we are brought into that bond, and as we make vows before God, we do so recognizing the importance of those vows. And especially as husbands, realizing the calling that we are called to love our wives as Christ loves his church, we're brought to our knees. We're brought to realize our desperate need for God's grace and God's mercy. How can I ever begin to love my wife like Christ loves me? Unconditionally, sacrificially, loving me in such a way that he never gives me any occasion to doubt his love for me. And so, we humble ourselves before God and we turn to his word and we pray. We pray for grace, we pray for strength to love faithfully, even as God loves us. The devil often works in indirect ways. The devil tries to get us to compromise. The devil tries to attack and undermine. But by God's grace, we say, get thee behind me, Satan. My faithful God has placed me in this relationship for his glory. And my calling now is to live unto him. It doesn't really matter, the spouse that I've been given. 
My calling is to do it for Him and to walk humbly before Him. And the greatest offense my spouse may commit against me can't begin to compare to the offenses I create before my living God. And so we pray for grace to maintain that principle, God's covenant as it's reflected in life in the earthly bond of marriage between one man, one woman, till death separates us. The commandment then comes with a prohibition. Thou shalt not commit adultery. The adulterer refuses to show the fullness of God's love toward God and toward those around him. The sin against the husband, the sin against the wife, the sin against others is a sin against God. Think of David and the versification of Psalm 51 that we sang, Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil. God requires obedience. He requires sanctification. And in this close, intimate relationship of marriage, we must walk faithfully before Him. But it's in that relationship also that one's heart is manifest. And there's perverseness there. There rises up in the minds of married men and married women a coveting after another woman, another man. There rises up in our minds lust, desire to pursue sinful expressions. And we defile our bodies. We defile our eyes. We sin against ourselves and against God. God gives over individuals to sin who continue to walk unrepentantly. And we recognize that. One who continues down the pathway of lying or down fornication or any other pathway will find himself more and more entangled in that sin. As God gives that one over more and more to that sin. Now God does that at times to his children in order to show them how weak they are. To teach them to pray more passionately and to look to him for strength more. To teach them spiritual lessons that they need to learn. But he brings them to repentance. He brings them to sorrow. It's very clear in our society that there is no such thing as a restraining influence of some common grace of God in the hearts of wicked men. That's what some theologians have insisted, that if we look around us in society, we can see evidence that God is holding men and women back from sin and that that's a part of his gracious work in their hearts. We acknowledge that God is at work in the creation. God is restraining sin for the good of his church. But we look at the filth and the corruption of society. We see the very opposite. We see God's judgment and God's wrath being evident in that sin is being punished with increasing sin. And the first chapter of Romans, Romans 1, teaches the adulterous world to shudder before the Almighty God. When they begin to give themselves over to their own lusts, their own desires, God lets them go to the most gross of sins, men with women, women with women, men with beasts, all kinds of immorality. Against that, this commandment stands. Repent. Turn from sin. Walk faithfully and chastely before God. Now we understand adultery involves 
that which is a sexual relationship outside of marriage with another who is not your marriage partner. Divorce occurs biblically when adultery takes place and reconciliation is not possible so that now God calls those individuals to live then separately, not bound together and yet in his eyes married. Two options. Be reconciled or remain unmarried. Divorce is not the dissolution of the marriage bond. The marriage still remains. Now Deuteronomy 24 would be the one passage that would seem to contradict this teaching. We look at Deuteronomy 24 and we have Moses there instructing men to give a writing of divorcement to their wives. And then instructing them that should they divorce their wives, they can't get them back again. And we read that and we're puzzled. What is going on here in Deuteronomy 24? Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, suffered it, Jesus said. But from the beginning, it was not so. We're thankful for Jesus and his comments in connection with Deuteronomy 24. The disciples and the Pharisees were working off Deuteronomy 24. Now Jesus comes and he's teaching something and they said, hold on, what you're teaching doesn't reckon with Deuteronomy 24. And Jesus then clearly and explicitly states, Deuteronomy 24 is not the standard. The standard is from the beginning. Deuteronomy 24 was because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning it was not so. So that the word of God does not promote divorce as that which dissolves the marriage bond. Death alone can break the marriage bond. And we have many indications, including the passage that already were read. Jesus' words to the Samaritan woman at the well indicates Jesus did not deem divorce to have broken the marriage bond. She was married to a number of men. We would say she was involved in polygamous relations, married to two, three, four, five, six, seven even men. If divorce breaks or dissolves the marriage, then it would stand to reason that both would be free to remarry. But Jesus' words are clear. Matthew 5, 31 and 32, Matthew 19, verses 3 through 9, Mark 10, verses 11 and 12, Luke 16, verse 18, 1 Corinthians seven thirty nine, Romans 7, verses 1 to 3, all are texts that demonstrate clearly the teaching of God's word. And there's a little brochure that's been put together on the back table if you want to grab one that lays out all those scripture passages and compares them one with another in order to teach what the Bible states concerning marriage. But in these texts, especially in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, it's important to note a couple of things. There are three different individuals that are involved in those passages. First, there's the man who, without the cause of fornication, forsakes his wife and marries another. He doesn't have a biblical ground, but he leaves his wife and now he marries someone else. Concerning that one, Jesus says, you are committing adultery because you're still considered married to that woman whom you forsook. Then secondly, there's the wife then who was forsaken. That wife has biblical grounds now. Her husband committed adultery. She now has a biblical ground for divorce. Then there's the man who 
marries that woman. That woman who is entirely innocent. She's been forsaken by her husband. She's committed no fornication. She has biblical grounds for divorce. And what does Jesus say? That man committed adultery by marrying her. And then the woman who married her, him also commits adultery. So that very clear Jesus establishes here the fact that there's no right for another marriage apart from death. As long as they're living, adulterous relationships are the only thing that can result. If ever there were an innocent party that had the right of remarriage, it would have been that woman who was unjustly divorced. But Jesus considers her still married and says the man who marries her commits adultery. In spite of the sin of her husband, in spite of the woman being put away, she still in God's eyes is the wife of that man. There's no other way to understand the fact that her marriage to another involved that third party then too in adultery. And so 1 Corinthians 7 again, 10 and 11 is clear. If there's divorce, if there's departure, either remain unmarried or be reconciled until death would separate one of the partners. But our calling then, beloved, is to flee fornication. Our calling is to walk faithfully before God in marriage, maintaining chastity and holiness before Him, and to flee fornication. When we think of that calling, we think of how broad it is, how quick we laugh, how quick we speak about fornication, how quick we separate the sexual relation from the purpose that God has ordained, a good purpose in marriage and for the procreation of children. And this comes at us from all directions. We get it from the television, from the internet, from movies, from books. We get it from posters and billboards. Strip clubs bombard us with sexual themes. And we're tempted to find sexual fulfillment in the pursuit of all of these other things instead of in the marriage that God has ordained. The temptations are intense. And we find ourselves thinking about, we find ourselves even seeking out sexual fulfillment. We find ourselves trying to plan things out maybe in our day in order to make it so that we can enjoy this experience. Beloved, repent. We need to hear the word of God. And God comes to us and says, you are committing adultery against me. I've called you to be faithful to me. You're not being faithful to me. You're sinning against me and you're sinning against your spouse. Constant, those temptations are. As the sexual drive is used to sell and as it's used to entice. And it's so easy for us to deceive ourselves and say, but I'm not so affected by this temptation. I can play with a little fire and I won't get burned. The devil constantly is tempting us, saying, yes, yes, you can play. Don't worry. You can live it up. God says, flee fornication. Run. Go the opposite direction. God says, you're too weak. You can't stand for a moment. You need to get out of the situation. And you need to flee fornicating thoughts. Your bodies belong to God. They're vessels of God. He has control not just over your body, but your mind as well. And therefore, he's given you a vessel that you are to maintain, according to 1 Thessalonians 4.4, 4, 
in sanctification and honor. Don't possess that vessel in the way of harboring lusts. Carry your vessel in chastity, in holiness, in honor. And cry out to God for the grace and strength to do so. That's the demand then, beloved. Love God. Love God with all of your mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Love God in single life or in marriage by maintaining faithfulness to Him. And love your neighbor where God has given you a spouse as yourself. When we're tempted, we have to remember that. I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. I belong, body and soul, to Jesus Christ. He bought me. He married me. He took me into this bond. And I don't belong to the devil any longer. I belong to him. My body belongs to Jesus Christ. And beloved, meditating on that truth, being thankful for that truth, the child of God prays for grace to turn away from temptation and to walk in love and faithfulness toward his God. The love of God moves us to respect our neighbor for God's sake, regardless of whether that neighbor is married or not. If the neighbor is married, we respect his marriage relationship out of love for God. We're not going to interact with him or his spouse. If the neighbor is unmarried, we respect the fact that God is the one that has put him in that situation and God is the one that has put me in my situation. And I flee temptation. We enjoy positive covenant communion with God and with the spouse that God has given us. And so as husbands, we live with our wives as Christ lives with us, his church. We dwell with our wives. We pray with our wives. Perhaps that's the most important thing. Pray with your wife. So that your wife knows your love for her. And she hears you state it as you pray for her and as you interact with her. Your children are to see that you love your wife and they see how you treat your wife. And they see a reflection in your treatment of their mother in God's treatment of them as his children. They see Christ's tenderness. They see his love. They see his compassion. They see his forgiveness. All represented in you. They see a man who's willing to die for his wife and for his family. They ought to be able to see in you how they are to live before God. Again, humbling. As wives, you show your children not only how you are to live in marriage, but how you live as a Christian, how you live as a follower of Jesus Christ. God is the one that put you in this relationship. It wasn't by chance. And perhaps things aren't as you would have them to be. Perhaps it's challenging every day. You pray. And your children see how you speak with their father, even though he's a sinful man. They see how you respect and you honor him as a representative of Jesus Christ. They see how you confess your sins, how you ask for forgiveness. And again, this isn't only how daughters are to live with their husbands, but this is how Christians live with Jesus Christ. 
We enjoy communion with Christ, however, whether we're married or single. And so again, the commandment is broad. When we're dating, we're seeking a companion with whom we can be united in the Lord. Christ is the uniting power in our lives. And we respect the fact that God has called us to chastity. The only possibility of having a close marriage relationship is with another who is spiritually one with us in Christ and one who's committed to living for the sake of Jesus Christ. You find that as you date, those opportunities to talk about spiritual things, to read the scriptures together, to pray, to come to church together, are treasured. They give opportunity for you to express your oneness in that spiritual way. And that's the way you can be confident. Our relationship is not just built on the physical. Our relationship is spiritual. It's built on God. It's built on God's glory. Every marriage needs to be built on that spiritual foundation of Christ and His church. Otherwise, that marriage will not be a joyful marriage. When you can be confident your marriage is God-glorifying, the high points then of your relationship are not just physical, but spiritual. You're walking with God. Your time in prayer. You're talking together about temptation, confessing your sins together, experiencing God's mercy and forgiving grace. Those are high points. Those are the points in your marriage that you remember and that you treasure. You experience union with Christ and you're convinced that this is the one that God ordained for me. God ordained that this is the one he would use in order to bring me to the glory that awaits. And we pray that God will reveal that and God will make it known to us as we date with a view to marriage. And as young men, young women, we preserve ourselves. We preserve ourselves for the man whom God has chosen for us so that we can wear that beautiful white wedding dress honestly. And as young men, we prepare ourselves for a future wife. We want a wife who's faithful to God and she deserves one who's faithful in turn. And we remember, any sexual relationships outside of marriage are not going to be fulfilling. They're not going to be pleasing. It's rebellion against God. There's going to be shame. There's going to be guilt. God says, I love you. You belong to me, body and soul. And now you're casting yourself into fornication. Flee fornication. And God forgives us. And he leaves scars. He leaves consequences until we die to remind us how weak we are and to remind us to humble ourselves and to not rise up in pride against anyone else. When God does not direct us to a mate or when God calls us to remain single for life according to his perfect providence, then we also look to him for strength to be that eunuch whom he requires of us for the kingdom of heaven's sake and to pray for patience and contentment, and to pray for grace, and to know that He owns my body, and He's the one with whom I am united. And that I look to Jesus, again, whose faithfulness on earth was evident, and who promises that He will never leave or forsake me. But He will give me His Spirit, and He will guide me, in order that I too can resist temptation for His glory. Beloved, we must fight boldly. We must fight prayerfully. The devil is at work. And the devil penetrates the church. And the devil causes all kinds of grief in our lives in connection with this sin. 
pray. Pray for yourself that God keep you faithful. Pray for one another that God keeps us faithful. We pray for our children. Children, pray for your parents. The child of God living out of Christ is praying. Praying because he knows I'm weak. The devil is strong. God alone is able to preserve and to keep his own. And the child of God who lives out of Christ in connection with the seventh commandment is never proud. He never assumes an attitude of pride over against anyone else. I know myself. I know my own weakness. I know my own lusts, my own passions. I know my own failures. I know that I am who I am by the wonder of God's grace alone. I don't relish the fact that I didn't get caught. God saw what I did. God sees everything. God holds me accountable. And God will expose sin. But we boast in one thing, Christ and His righteousness. And we boast in the wonder of God's grace and God's mercy by which Jehovah God has married me and pledged His love for me that even though I'm so unfaithful, even though I fail, He will never leave me nor forsake me. Beloved, by the grace of God, we fight to keep our garments clean. Watch whom we choose for friends. Careful in our choice of dress. Immodest dress is a great evil in our day, and it leads to much lust, much fornication. Careful with respect to our conversation. Careful with regard to what we allow our eyes to fall upon. Whatever smacks of fornication, God says, let it not be once named among you. We go forward, beloved, captivated by the love of God in Jesus Christ for me. We think not only what Christ did for me, but we think of what Christ is doing in me by His Spirit. My sins are as scarlet. My sins with regard to the seventh commandment, as scarlet. But He brings me to repentance. He moves me to forgiveness. And I have no other lover who will love me as much as Christ. And to Him then I pledge my faithfulness. To Him I pledge my chastity. And to Him I look for strength to go and sin no more. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, forgive us. Thou dost know how powerful the devil is in his ways with us. Thou dost know how easily and quickly we are led into grievous, sin. Forgive us, Lord. May we know the wonder of the blood of Jesus Christ. May we know the power of thy spirit living and dwelling within us. And may we be men, women, young people and children of prayer, praying one with another for the strength that thou alone art able to give, to preserve and to keep us in the enjoyment of the wonder of thy love. Amen.